Today's scripture reading is from the book book of Luke, chapter 1, verses 45 through 55. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of his humble state of this servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the wretch away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. We're in the third week now of a seven-week series through the first couple of chapters of the book of Luke during the season of Advent, looking at the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Uh, Last week, we looked at the Annunciation, the announcement by the angel Gabriel to Mary that she was going to give birth to a son. This week, we're looking at the Magnificat. Uh, Mary's hymn, her song that she bursts into when it finally dawns on her what this all means. And we said last week that we could think of Mary as the first Christian. Uh, If that's true, we can think of her song here as the first Christmas carol. It's the first song that somebody sings celebrating the birth of Christ. And uh, it's probably still the best one, probably still the best Christmas carol we have, even you know, thousands of years and many thousands of Christmas carols later. So what I want to do this morning is look at why it's so great, what makes it such a great song, and what, what makes for a good Christmas carol, because um, we all know that there are plenty of bad Christmas carols out there. Um, and so I want us to put on the the hat of literary critic this morning and analyze what makes for a great Christmas carol. You know, pretend we work for the the arts section of the New York Times. Look at Mary's uh, carol, the greatest of them all, and then some others along the way. And that's not just an intellectual exercise. You know, the knock on criticism as a as a field is that, oh, you know, you stand above and, and criticize, you know, and just say what's good and what's bad and, you know, above the fray. It's so easy. Um, but I'm a big fan of, of criticism as an endeavor. I think it's valuable because it can help us to appreciate something that we might not otherwise be able to appreciate. And that's the case here. You know, these Christmas carols that we sing every year, that we've sung a couple of them today, they're not just these nice old festive songs. They're uh, very powerful. They're dynamite in a pretty package. And they have the power to transform us if we can appreciate them, if we can sing them properly. So that's what I hope we'll learn to do by looking at the greatest carol of them all. So when it comes to the Magnificat, three qualities I want us to note, three areas where we can see its greatness, and they're all areas of tension, Great art has to have attention, you know, that it can't be, you know, uh, what is the word? I'm, uh, it can't not have tension. Uh, just give me a second here. Um, it can't be, well, you know, it has to have tension. It must have, it must have tension. Um, and Mary's song has that in abundance. Um, it's not simple. It's not, uh, it doesn't ignore the complexities of the real situation. It has tension in three areas. 
Uh, first, it's joyful. Uh, no, not first. Jeez, man. Let me, let me just uh, center myself here. First, it's... I don't have them here. I'm just picking up this paper to act like I... Uh, <laughs> Act like I'm doing something. <laughs> uh, first, it's personal yet theological. First, it's personal yet theological. Second, it's joyful yet unsentimental. And third, it is um, third. You, you've got it. You know. How do you know what it is? <laughs> Um, third, this is going to stop being funny in just a second. Um, what's that? Yeah. Maybe we'll wait for the third one. Yeah. The third one will be a surprise. Thank you. You guys are, now I've got you guys all on my, my team now that you see I'm struggling, which is good. Okay. So first, uh, uh, personal yet theological. Second, joyful yet unsentimental. And third, Surprise. Um, so first, personal yet theological. Uh, the, f- the first thing a, a good Christmas carol has to be is personal, and you see this in the Magnificat. So if you look with me, let's go back to the text uh, here. The, the first stanza, she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And it's interesting. This is really interesting because uh, there's widespread consensus that Mary is the most humble woman who has ever lived. And yet, she starts out this song, and what is she singing about? My soul, my spirit, he's been mindful of me. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. The Mighty One has done great things for me. She's singing about herself, the most humble woman that's ever lived, and she starts singing about herself. And it's, it's a good example that every good hymn, carol, and every good Christian life has to be personal. There has to be this focus on what God has done for you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm blind, but now I see. It has to be personal. It has to be about what God has done for you. And so I want to ask you, what has God done for you? And you say, you know, if you're a, a, a Sunday school type, you say, well, you know, he, he sent Jesus to, to die on the cross for my sins. That's what he's done for me. And that's true. Um, but do you really feel that? Or are you just saying that because it's the right answer? You know, and even if you do really feel it, what, what else has he done for you? You can't stop there. You have to be able to point to specific things in your life that you can, where you can see that God is, has paid you attention. Because that's what this is about. You know, all, all throughout the Bible, um, there's this promise that's repeated by God in a hundred different ways, which is this. If you pay me attention, I'll pay you attention. If you mind my business, I will mind your business. And then when you see that happen, like Mary sees it happen, then the the, the right response is to to celebrate, to rejoice. There's this lie out there um, floating around that says, you know, the point of uh, the Christian life, if if you become a really serious Christian, what that means is that you will eventually just forget about yourself altogether. You'll stop caring about yourself. 
And like all dumb ideas that have gained traction, this one has gained traction because it's closely related to a true idea. The true idea is obviously that you're not supposed to spend your life caring for yourself, um, taking care of your own needs, serving yourself, obeying your own desires. Uh, That's certainly true. But just because you're not supposed to be caring for yourself doesn't mean you're not supposed to care about yourself. And the idea is is that you obey God and is that you serve others. Your needs are going to be met, but by someone else, namely God. And when God does that, when God meets your needs, you think you don't act like you're you're too good. Oh, I don't care about myself. No, you rejoice. That's what you were wanting to happen the whole time. And that's what Mary says. She says he's faithful. He was faithful to me. He did just what he said he was going to do. He took care of me. Look what he's done for me. Look what he's done for me. You have to have that personal element if you're going to have a good hymn, a good carol, or a good Christian life. And yet, it's not just personal, it's also theological. So look at the second stanza here. Uh, She shifts. The first stanza is the me stanza. The second stanza is the he stanza. Then she starts talking. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So she shifts. She moves from talking about herself to then using that as a point of departure for theological reflection. And it has to happen. You have to, it can't just stay all about you. At some point, uh, you have to be thinking about God. And for her, it's not that she's just looking to God for a handout. It's that once she receives this from God, then that makes her say, how good is God? How great God is. So if you, if you don't have the personal element and you just think about God, just talk about God, then your faith lacks enthusiasm and vitality. But if you just look at yourself and, and what God does for you and don't think about God himself, then your faith lacks the depth and sticking power and richness. And all the great hymns do this. They start talking about me, and then they move to talking about God. You know, we talk about Amazing Grace. What's the last verse of Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less days to sing his praise than when we first began. It's about him. It's all about him. And that's what she does here. She moves to this theological place. So I said we were going to mention some other carols along the way. Um, The best contemporary Christmas carol, um, and by contemporary I mean within the last 300 years, um, is I think I can say this without fear of contradiction. There's there's consensus. I think it might not be your favorite, but it's the best. This, this is the point of criticism. The best Christmas carol is "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," and and one of the reasons why it's so great is because of how well it does this integration and tension of the personal and the theological. So listen to the third verse of "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," for instance. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. It's the personal and the theological together. That's what the Magnificat has, that's what the great carols have. It's the first area of tension we want to look at. Number two, second area of tension, it's joyful, but it's unsentimental. Joyful, yet unsentimental. First personal, yet theological. Now joyful, but unsentimental. So it has to be joyful. A good Christmas carol has to be joyful. Um, You can't have just a 
totally dour Christmas carol. Um, it wouldn't be a Christmas carol. And Mary's Magnificat has the joy, uh, the requisite joy that you need. You know, she's talking about, I'm blessed. She's talking about the hungry are going to be filled with good things. She's talking about all the mighty one has seen me, all the stuff we just talked about. It definitely has the joy. But it has that joy without lapsing into um, this bad place that a lot of Christmas carols go, which is sentimentalism. Just this um, touchy-feely, uh, everything's great, kind of over-emotional, um, and, and just uh, obscuring reality. You know, not willing to look at the dark side of things because we're telling this, this sweet story here. So the, the uh, valuable part of a critic's job is, you know, calling attention to good art, and the fun part of a critic's job is um, making fun of the bad stuff. Um, so that's what we get to do now. Um, and I would like to start with Away in a Manger. Um, if this is your favorite carol, there, today's a great day to pick a new favorite carol. I'm, I'm sorry. Um, let, let me just read this to you. Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay, the little Lord Jesus asleep in the hay. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I love thee, Lord Jesus, look down from the sky and stay by my cradle till morning is nigh. It's just bad. It's just it's just very bad. And I, I mean, I know it's a it's a children's you know lullaby, but it's bad even for children. It's just sappy, sentimental, and unrealistic. You know, what is this about the the silent baby Jesus that doesn't cry? You know, where does that come from? And the the danger of being sentimental is that you obscure the truth because it's making it sound like this this beautiful, idyllic thing that Jesus was born under the stars, you know? Like, how, how sweet is that? Well, I don't think it was, there's anything idyllic about it, you know? Ask Joseph if he thought it was beautiful and idyllic to have your wife be nine months pregnant and to be get called in for a census, you know, perfect timing, to make the journey with one donkey instead of two horses because you're so dirt poor, so he's walking the whole way, um, worried the whole time about how uncomfortable she is. And then as they get to the town that they have to go to, she goes in to labor. So it's, you've got one job at that point. As the man, as the husband, as the soon-to-be father, find a room. Find a room for her to give birth to the child. Find, a, you know, there's no mom around, no aunts, no friends. Find a, a woman that knows what she's doing that can deliver this baby. So he goes knocking to all these different doors, and every time, same thing, opens the door, they see what he's wearing, they hear his accent, they know in two seconds that he's got no money and no connections, and so they don't even check. They just say, no, I'm sorry, you know, I don't, I don't think so. And, you know, he's, here he is making a fool of himself in front of his wife, going from door to door, not able to get the job done, and he's saying, just one, let me try one more, let me try this one, let me try this one, and she's, it's, the baby's coming, there's no more doors to try, the baby's coming right now, and so they see this cave where the animals are tied up of the people that are actually in the houses, and they go, and he tries to clear a spot on the ground, you know, it smells like dung and urine, a clean spot on the ground, so she can give birth to the child in the dirt, blood everywhere, 
Don't give me away in a manger. You know, it's, there's nothing beautiful or idyllic about this. It's awful. It's awful. And sentimentalism obscures that. Now, I know I'm, I'm treading on much more sacred ground with this one, but Silent Night is actually not much better. You know, Silent Night, what is, what, it's not a silent night. All is calm. Nothing is calm. And then this, this, you've got this same thing about uh, round, young version, mother and child, sleep, uh, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. There's no heavenly peace. That's the whole point. The whole point is that he left heavenly peace to come into this, into earthly chaos. There's no heavenly peace. It's not beautiful. It's not idyllic. It's very bad in a lot of ways. There's a lot of darkness. And the good carols don't miss that. They don't obscure that. You know, we sang um, a good example of this as we sang... Um, o Come, O Come, Emmanuel, this morning. And that's a very joyful song. The, the chorus of the song is rejoice, rejoice. So it's joyful. But, and yet, it's in a minor key, and you've got these words, uh, mourning, captivity, lonely exile, Satan's tyranny, depths of hell, grave, gloomy clouds of night, dark shadows, the path to misery, sad divisions, those are things that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is talking about. It's got a lot of darkness in there with the light. It's joyful, but it doesn't become sentimental. And that's why Mary's Magnificat is so great, is that it doesn't, it doesn't obscure the, the true complexity of Christmas. Um, you, know, you heard the, the lines earlier um, you know, about he, he gives the hungry good things to eat. And that's what we think of when we think of a Christmas carol. Like, oh, God, that's so nice. You know, give the hungry good things to eat. Or he lifts up the humble. But, but what's the other half of those couplets? You know, there, there are two lines. He gives the hungry good things to eat, but he sends the rich away empty. Well, that's not very nice. That's not warm and fuzzy and Christmassy. You know, in Dickens' Christmas Carol, uh, Tiny Tim gets filled, but Scrooge is still filled too. In Mary's Christmas Carol, Tiny Tim gets filled, and Scrooge is left out in the cold. It's not, it's not warm and fuzzy. And same thing with the, the lifting of the humble, but he scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. We're going to talk more about what that means and who those people are in just a second. But the point for right now is just the tone of it. It's, it's dark. He's scattered. Christmas means people getting scattered. He scatters those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. The Magnificat is joyful, but it is not sentimental. And that's the second area of tension and the second reason it's a great carol. The third area of tension, and it just came to me. Yeah, hallelujah. Oh, wow, look at this. Jacob went and found my computer and got the third one. Look at that. He had, he had no, uh, no faith in me, but just fine. I, I wouldn't have had any faith in me either after watching those first two minutes up here. Um... Well, I thought of it anyway, Jacob. I can't prove that now, but um, <laughs> the the third one is uh, it's traditional yet revolutionary. Traditional yet revolutionary. So, good carol has to be traditional. Um, a good carol sounds like it's always existed. You know, you don't want some new catchy uh, carol. It has to feel like it's got weight and like it's always been around. Um, and Mary's Carol has that. And the way you do that, you, the way you get that gravity to a piece of work is by drawing on the past. 
by bringing in elements of this great tradition that's gone before you. That's what it means traditionally. You're in the, the line of the tradition. And Mary does that by drawing on Scripture. Almost every verse in this song has some parallel in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. So it's a very traditional song in that sense, and all the great carols are. Um, but it's, it's not just traditional. It's also revolutionary. It's just, not just a repetition of the past. It's also something brand new. And it's revolutionary in two different senses. So first it's revolutionary just in the sense that it, the content of the song itself is talking about an actual revolution. Um, so, you know, there's a revolution. There's one group of people that's on top and one group of people that's on the bottom, and then the roles flip-flop. It's inverted. And that's what she's talking about here. You know, the, he, the one group is going to be out. The group that's in right now is going to be out later, and the group that's out right now is going to be in later. Um, and you can see why she would be celebrating that as a person who's, you know, giving birth in a cave while everybody else is on the inside. But it's, it's not just revolutionary in the sense that she talks about a revolution occurring. It's revolutionary in a, in a second sense that is the sense I want to focus on. And that's in that she, when she talks about this revolution, she, she draws the line uh, between the two groups of people in a different place than it's ever been drawn before. So she, she talks about the revolution in a revolutionary way. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the, the traditional story, the traditional religious story, is that, yes, at the end of time, there will be a revolution, and uh, all the bad people, the people that have broken the rules and broken the laws and, and got their hands slapped and done the stuff they're not supposed to do, um, but you know have had so much fun their whole life sinning, um, all those people are going to get what's coming to them. They're going to get punished. And all the good people, the people that have done what they're supposed to do, the people that have kept all the rules, they are going to get what's coming to them, which is reward. So the bad people will be out, and the good people will be in. And that's where we draw the line. Good and bad, righteous and wicked. And Mary says something different. She says, that's not where we draw the line. We draw the line somewhere else. We draw the line at the humble and the proud. The humble will be lifted up. But those who are proud in their inmost thoughts will be scattered. And it shouldn't say that. It should say, the righteous will be lifted up, but the wicked will be scattered. That's what it should say. That's what a traditional religious woman should say. But she says something new. She says, the humble will be lifted up, but those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, those are the ones that are going to be scattered. What is she talking about? Well, if you look at the three groups of people that she says are blessed, you know, here's the people that Christmas is good news for. She said, blessed are the meek, the humble, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Well, all of a sudden that rings a bell. Sounds just like the Beatitudes. That's the opening lines of the Sermon on the Mount. And you realize what Mary is talking about here is none other than the Christian gospel itself which is the most revolutionary, the most upside-down, the most surprising thesis that has ever broken in into human thought. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that it's not that the good are let in while the bad are kept out. Rather, it's that those who know they're bad are let in while those who think they're good are kept out. Completely different, a completely new idea, and that's what Christmas means. That's what Jesus came to teach. That's what Jesus came to to live. That's why Jesus died, for this new way of drawing the line between who's in and who's out. The humble are in, those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, those are the ones that are out. And so everybody has to ask themselves on which side of the line 
am I on? You know, am I on the humble side with Mary, or am I proud in my inmost thoughts? Do I think I'm a good person? Do I think I deserve to be let in? And what's tricky about that is that if you are proud, it's almost impossible to see that in yourself. You know, so I don't even know why I'm talking about this, honestly. You know, because if you're here and you're proud, you can't see it. You can never see it until it's too late. And I guess the, the point I'm talking about is just maybe, you know, if at some point God does, in his mercy, bring you low. Um, you can think back on this and think, oh, maybe that's why it happened. Or maybe if God has, in his mercy, brought you low, you can think, well, maybe this is why it happened. So it's the best thing that can happen to you. It's the best thing that can happen to you if he humbles you. Because then you're on the right side of the line. And the sooner that happens, the sooner you get where you're supposed to be, the better off it is for you. Because Christmas isn't good news for everybody. You know, what Christmas means is that Jesus came to do two very different things for two very different groups of people. He came to comfort the afflicted, and he came to afflict the comfortable. He came to raise up the humble. He came to knock down the proud. You've got to be on the right side of that line. See, everybody's going to bow to him someday. Everybody's going to recognize the truth of these Christmas carols that we sing someday. But the sooner it happens for you, the better. A Christian is just somebody who realizes the inevitable and is trying to get out in front of it a little bit. One of the scariest, most solemn verses in the whole Bible is in, in John chapter 12. This is uh, verse 48. Jesus says, uh, I'm, well, first he says, he says, I'm not going to judge those who don't accept my words. So you're thinking, oh, good, you know, relief. I, I was hoping that's how it would be. I'm not going to judge those who don't accept my words. And then he says, but there is a judge, okay, but there is a judge. The words I have spoken, the words themselves will rise up and judge those who don't accept them at the last day, which is a very scary thought. You know, when you think about these Christmas carols that we sing every year, the Christmas carols have the words of Christ themselves in them. They have this, this truth about Christ, and then we sing them every year. And if you sing them, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, if you sing the lines but never do anything about it, never believe it, never humble yourself, then what, what the Bible says is that the Christmas carols will rise up and judge you at the last day. Damned by a Christmas carol. Imagine that. Christmas isn't good news for everybody. It's, it's not a joke. It's a serious confrontation to each of us, and we each have to decide how we're going to deal with it, how we're going to approach it. So the three reasons the, the Magnificat is so great, we still look at it and sing it and study it several thousand years later, these three areas of tension. It's personal, and yet it's theological. It's joyful, but it doesn't become sentimental. And lastly, it's traditional, but it's also very revolutionary. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice with Mary that you came at Christmas time. And we ask that this Christmas you would show us how this all relates to us in a way that we have not seen before, in a way that hasn't been clear to us before. If we are proud, God, in our inmost thoughts, not where anybody else can see, but within where only we know, if we're proud there, I ask that in your mercy you would humble us, that you would come and disrupt our lives 
and do something, anything to shake us out of that delusion so that we can be on the right side, so that we can be lifted up by you. And God, for those who are humble, we, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for the attention that you've paid to us. We praise you for the way that you accept us no matter how we failed, no matter what we've done wrong. Um, that as soon as we figure out we need you, you're there with open arms. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.